Happy Lord's Day. I love you. Let's get right to work. For me, work is defined today as reading one verse of Scripture, explaining it, and then giving you six points of application. Today, work for you is defined as listening attentively and then leaving here and doing what the Bible says. Because if you want to be happy in Jesus, you have to trust and obey. So um, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today is a very simple one. It is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Turn to that passage and then stand, and please, out of respect for God's word, I will read as you are standing, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that you have loved us, you have put love within our hearts, you have demonstrated love in the kindness that you show to us day by day in sustaining us, you have demonstrated your love in the giving of your son, Lord, you have demonstrated love in the sending of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we know love because you are love and have shown us love, and now, Lord, it is our desire to love But we want to confess, Lord, that by nature we do not love anyone or anything except ourselves. Lord, today we want that to change. We want to know how to love the brethren. And so, Father, Lord, would you, by your Spirit, be our teacher today. May we learn and may we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So the point of the Bible is Jesus... The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism, and the point of Hebrews chapter 13 is to be doers of the word. The New Testament book of Hebrews has 13 chapters, and so far we have covered 12 of them, one to go. The book of Hebrews, along with the book of Romans, uh, they are the two most theologically rich books in the New Testament. And the vast majority of our time studying the first 12 chapters of Hebrews has been rightly spent clarifying and understanding doctrine and theology concerning the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that was time well spent. But let's remember that truth, doctrinal theological truth in our heads, needs to be translated into changes in our lives. And so I'm asking today, before I even begin to preach, Are you leaning forward? Do you want to change? Is there a disposition in your heart to hear and then to do? Are you looking to make a change right now with respect to an advancement in your life in holiness? Uh, Chapter 13 is loaded with commands and imperatives as to exactly how our day-to-day lives should change in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. So today, as I said, we're only going to be covering one verse. But before we get to that one verse, let's put this one verse in its context. As chapter 12 came to an end, we were commanded, in light of the fact that our God is a consuming fire, that we were to be grateful because we're receiving a kingdom. By grace, we are receiving freely a kingdom. And in our worship or in our service, we are to have a disposition of reverence and awe, one which is acceptable to God. 
Now, as I preached this last week, my emphasis on this service or worship uh, was applied to public worship primarily. I do not retract anything that I said. I think it was correct. I think it does apply. However, as I look at this text in its context, uh, namely everything that we see in chapter 13, it seems as though the primary sense of service or worship in the mind of the Spirit-inspired author is primarily lived out not on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. This is a Monday through Saturday type of service or worship in our day-to-day lives. And then as we get into chapter 13, in the first several verses, we're going to see that the topics are love and hospitality and prison ministry and sex and marriage and love of money and contentment. It's going to get immediately very practical. Uh, yes, this is a Monday through Saturday type of sermon. And today we're going to be looking at love, and then, Lord willing, next week we're going to be looking at hospitality. So here is our verse for today. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Now, I do not have an outline for this message today, but I do have a topic. The topic is the continuation of love. The text says, let brotherly love continue. In order for something to continue, it first must start. And it is a good thing for the sake of these people that it is said that they have already started. And the reason why that is a good thing for them is because if they had not already started loving the brethren, they would not be Christians. They would not be saved. They would not be born of God. Let's just back up and answer the question, what is a Christian? You know that there are real Christians and you know that there are fake Christians. Real Christians will be going to heaven. Fake Christians will be going to hell. What is a real Christian? I'm not asking the question, how does one become a Christian? That is a good question. If you would like me to answer that in detail, I would be happy to do that. The short answer is faith alone in Christ alone is how you become a Christian, but I'm not answering, nor am I asking the question today, how does one become a Christian? I'm asking the question, what is a Christian? What does a Christian look like, a real Christian? And assuming that the answer is found in the Bible, it can be boiled down to three evidences, and, and really they all come from the book of First John. But here's the first evidence that one is a Christian. They have to know and believe the gospel. In other words, there must be doctrinal evidence. First John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 say, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So there is that doctrinal evidence. There are certain facts that one must know and understand. What are those facts? Well, I think if we were to reduce it to a bare bone minimum amount of facts, it would be that the Bible is true and that God is holy, that we are sinners, that Jesus is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, and that he was raised again from the dead. And faith alone in Christ alone is required for salvation. That's bare bones. If one does not believe those things, it doesn't matter how kind they are. It doesn't matter how charitable they are. 
they are not saved, they are not Christians, they are not going to heaven. But next, there's not only the theological or the doctrinal evidence that has to be there, but there also is ethical evidence. In other words, there must be repentance. Uh, There must be repentance. There must be obedience to God's word. Certainly not perfect obedience, because no one is perfect. If we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. But the general bent of one's life must be in the direction of obedience. So if someone believes correctly, yet they are a fornicator, that is that they are sleeping with someone that they are not married to, or they are a homosexual, or they are an habitual liar, or they are a drunkard, well, they are not a true Christian. They are not saved. They are not going to heaven. That That is the ethical test. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, I've got all of my doctrine lined up, I know God through Jesus Christ, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, correct doctrine is essential, but It is also very dangerous. It's very dangerous because if you have all of the right doctrine, you have all of the right answers, you probably can hide from other people and you can deceive yourself and deceive other people simply by saying, the Bible says believe and I believe and here's what I believe and what I believe is correct. There has to be a life that matches the doctrine. All of the right answers have to be incongruity with our lifestyle. So how do we know that one is a real Christian? Number one, there is the doctrinal evidence. They have to believe the gospel. Secondly, there is the ethical evidence. They need to repent of their sins. And then third, there's another evidence which is essential, and this is the love test. They must love the brethren. What's love got to do with it? Everything, Tina, everything. You see, one could be a seminary professor and very pietistic in their lifestyle. They could be a rule keeper, and they could still go to hell. Why? If they do not love the brethren. Uh, Love is not the absence of hate. Love is active. Uh, Love is an action. When I was in college, I knew a guy that was very irritating. He was a Christian. He was very irritating. There was another guy who simply did not want to have anything to do with him. He too was a Christian. And I said to him, listen, we are Christians. I know that this guy is irritating, but we have to love him. And his response was, I don't hate him or anything. So in his mind, he was loving by virtue of the fact that he did not hate. The absence of hate is not love. Love is more than that. I knew of another pastor in Mississippi, and this is back in the days when they used to do things called an altar call or an invitation. This man preached the gospel, and at the end of the service, his wife came forward, and he said, sweetheart, what are you, what are you doing? She said, I'm coming to get saved. And he said, whoa, whoa, you're already saved. And she said, no, I'm not. And he said, what do you mean you're not saved? He said, She said, I'm not saved. I don't love these people that we're ministering to. I am not a Christian. I do not love. I want to be saved. She knew that she had to love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, Listen, anyone who does not love 
does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And so when we read the words, let brotherly love continue, this is a very deep and profound indicator that one is a real Christian. Now, once again, you do not become a Christian by having sound doctrine or by refraining from sin or by loving people in the church. But if you are a Christian, these evidences, these three marks need to be evident. Uh, How's that for redundancy? The evidences need to be evident. But as I was saying, it is good news when someone says to you, let brotherly love continue. It's an indicator, not the only one, but it is an indicator that you are a real Christian. And so as I speak to you today, I am speaking to you plural. I am not addressing any one individual. I am speaking primarily to the members of North Shore Baptist Church. Within that group, there are various subsets of people. There are those who do love the brethren, and it is evident by the way that they live their lives. Uh, They get to know people. They get to know people Monday through Saturday. They are not just Sunday Christians. And oftentimes we have this phrase, Sunday Christian, to mean, well, it is on Sunday that I go to church. It is Sunday that I worship, and then I live a duplicitous life on Monday through Saturday. I am not living as a Christian in that I am doing bad things on Monday through Saturday. And so we say that person is a Sunday Christian. And I suppose that that is true. But when I say today, Sunday Christian, in reference to this message, what I'm saying is they are a Sunday Christian in that they come to church on Sunday and see the people of God on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, There's no contact with the people of God whatsoever. So in that sense, they are a Sunday Christian. And if one does not extend themselves to other people Monday through Saturday, if church only means Sunday, um, and there's nothing in between, then it cannot be defined as love. Again, once, once again, the absence of hate is not love. If I'm a baseball player and I sit on the bench every inning of every game and I begin to brag and I begin to say, well, you know, I've never made an out. Well, congratulations. Do you know why you've never made an out? It's because you've never had an at-bat. If a person says, well, you know, I, I, I love these people. I have no problems with them whatsoever. Well, you don't know that unless you have spent time with them. And so what is implied here is that people will get to know one another Monday through Saturday, and they will have an affection for people, and it will be evident by how generous and helpful they are toward one another, and as we shall see next week, how hospitable they they are. The people of God are their close family members. Now, to that subset, the author says, keep on keeping on. Let brotherly love continue. Because that is pleasing to the Lord. That is acceptable worship to him. And it is also evidence that you are saved because 1 John 3, 14 says, we know, here's an evidence, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. To these people, he is saying, you are saved. It's an evidence that you are saved. Keep going. You're doing a great job. I will get back to that group in just a minute. But to those, again, I'm speaking to you. So when I speak to you, there are different subsets of you. 
So when I speak you plural, there are those who are loving, but now I would like to speak to the church members who are not loving. Uh, in your Monday through Saturday lives, uh, you regularly express no love for the brethren. And by that, I mean you have no contact, you give no assistance, there is no fellowship, you are totally uninvolved in the lives of other people in the church. Now, are you saved? You may be saved. I mean, after all, you are a church member, which means that you gave a credible verbal testimony of salvation, and you attend uh, You attend enough or just enough so that we don't remove your name from the roll. And I suppose that if I outlive you, I will be doing your funeral. And at your funeral, I suppose that I will speak as though you are in heaven. I don't see as how it's going to do any good for me to speak to your relatives as though you are not in heaven. I mean, if you have a credible profession of faith, I suppose I can get up and tell a few lies about you. It's not going to be a problem. But please understand that where your written membership is registered and what I say about your funeral and what you may have felt when you were quote-unquote converted or had a conversion experience, that is not going to be of any value whatsoever before the judgment bar of God. The question I have for you today, and I'm speaking to church members who are uninvolved in the lives of other people, is are you saved? And you answer that question today not only with your doctrinal test, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not only with your ethical test, how you have repented of your sins, but you have to answer that question with the love examination in view. Do you have love for the brethren? If love for the brethren was a crime, is there enough evidence to convict you? I'm not asking you today to answer the question, do you love the brethren? Because as immediately when I answer that, ask that question, you're going to answer it by saying yes, so that you can get that box ticked off because that is the correct answer. What I'm asking you to do today, within your own mind, asking the Holy Spirit to probe and to really work on your heart, I'm asking you to produce practical evidence in your own mind, which clearly, undoubtedly demonstrates by your words, by your time, by your heart, by your actions, by your priorities, by your generosity, by your hospitality, and your sacrifices that you indeed do love the brethren. And so if you say, in honesty, in honesty, I got nothing there. I mean, I don't hate anybody, but if you're asking me, like if a camera was on me for the last month and there was to be video evidence of demonstrations of my love for the brethren, I got nothing. I got nothing. My Monday through Saturday is my Monday through Saturday. Well, I don't want to over dramatize this. And I don't want to just be rhetorical today and to make an overstatement. But if that is true, that there is no evidence of any demonstration of love toward the brethren, I think that the best shot that you have, the best assurance that you have that you are going to heaven is if either God is bluffing or if God was joking or if God was overstating the warning which he made in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God 
because God is love. If that is a true statement, then you are in trouble. I guess there's another possibility that perhaps I am misinterpreting this passage, but I think it's pretty clear. Anybody who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, Cinderella, if the shoe fits, put it on and repent. And by repent, I don't necessarily mean that you need to start doing the right thing. That is, start loving people, although that is a good thing. But when I say repent here, what I mean is you probably need to get saved for the very first time because those who are saved do love the brethren. Continuing on. Just because saved people are granted faith and repentance, and they are, so too they are granted love. Now, I will leave it to you and the Holy Spirit to work that one out. But now I want to go back to whom the text is addressed, and that is the subset of North Shore Baptist Church, which, by the way, in my estimation, means the majority of those of you who are here this morning. This other subset, the loving subset, the author says to those of you who are loving, let brotherly love continue. Implied in this is that they have been demonstrating brotherly love up to this point. Let's consider what brotherly love is and what it looks like. Notice that it is not just love, but it is brotherly love. Uh, That is, love for their spiritual siblings, fellow Christians. Uh, You say, well, are we only supposed to love fellow Christians? No, Jesus clearly says that you are to love your enemies. We are to love all. Paul writes, we are to do good to all, but especially to those who are the household of faith. And so the test of one's salvation is what is the love that they have for the brethren, for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the Greek word here, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And I find it very interesting that if you were to read through all of the non-biblical works of literature in antiquity from the first century, you would never once ever find the word Philadelphia applied to anybody except for one's biological siblings. It doesn't speak about two friends having Philadelphia, brotherly love. It always speaks about love within a family. The concept of of calling fellow believers brothers and sisters is uniquely biblical. Philadelphia, or brotherly love, is a word which the Bible has hijacked from society and has applied within the church. And the concept of family was much more meaningful in the first century than it is today. You see, in that time, you would only use family terms for those who were the closest to you. And so when the author says, let brotherly love continue, well, in this particular context, it is in the context of the local church, and it is not only revolutionary, but it is a way of saying, these people with whom you share church membership are to be as close to you as your actual blood family. And in reality, we who know Christ together are closer to one another in God's estimation than even our earthly biological brothers and sisters. And what is it? 
that allows us to live and to speak and to act and to refer to one another as family. It is the gospel. You see, it is God, our heavenly father, that makes us a family. And we are sons and daughters of him. And the reason why we are sons and daughters of him, it is because of the work of Christ dying for our sins and because the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and placing us into the family of God. And so when I say, let brotherly love continue, I'm not talking about the continuation of this in a club or in an organization or a society. We are a family that God has joined together. You are my brothers and sisters, not because I like you and I want to be with you, although for the record, I do like you and I do want to be with you, but that is not why you are my family. We are joined together by God's design and by God's providence. I mean, look around the room today. Would we, left to ourselves, form this church? Absolutely not. There is no mathematical chance in the world whatsoever that we would all be in this same room together. We would not. It is not our compatibility or our common interest or our ethnicity or our proximity to where one another lives that makes us a local New Testament church. It is the work of God. He and his love for us is our common denominator. And so we don't take loving one another seriously because we feel so comfortable around one another. We take loving one another seriously because we have been joined together, bonded together by the blood of Christ with God as our heavenly father. Hebrews 2.11 says, for he who sanctifies or makes holy, that is referring to Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's you and me, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers. We are in the family of Jesus Christ by the work of Jesus Christ. Or consider the hymn by Henry Van Dyke, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other and lift us to the joy divine. You see, I'm stressing this point to emphasize how God views our relationships to one another as covenanted church members. We are family. We are family. And there's nothing wrong with a family that loves one another and they get along, but there is something desperately wrong where siblings don't actually participate in showing practical love to one another. This wonderful thing that God has done in the church is odd, and it seems very odd to the world. Listen to this quote from a Greek satirist. His name was Lucian of Somasata, and he lived from A.D. 115 to the year 200, and he wrote disparagingly about Jesus and about Christians and about the church. Listen to what he had to say about Jesus and about us. Having convinced themselves that they are going to be immortal and live forever, that's you and me, if we think we're going to heaven, 
he's, he's, he's speaking disparagingly about us because we think that we're going to live forever. The poor wretches, that, that's you and me, despise, uh, that is, think nothing of, they despise death and most even willingly give themselves up. So when they come to be arrested, they don't run. They just give themselves up. That's you and me, the poor wretches who really don't think that much about death, and we think that we're going to live forever. Furthermore, Lucian says, their first lawgiver, that's Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another. He duped or conned us into thinking that we're a family. And after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods, in other words, the the ultimate act of apostasy is that they have denied the Greek gods, small g, and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living according to his laws. That is what the world thinks of us. And that's how the world perceives our faith in Jesus and how the world views our love for one another. It is just odd to them. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is an indicator that we are saved and unsaved people will look at that and say, hmm, the identifying mark of them being a follower of this Jesus is that they have love for one another. Side point, the point of this message is not evangelism. The point of this message is obedience. The point of this message is we are family because of our common relationship to God, our Father, through Jesus Christ. However, if I can take a sidetrack for a moment and speak evangelistically, one of the byproducts of our love for one another is that it will catch the eye of the unbeliever and it will be noted as different and strange and perhaps even attractive. Now, Lucian saw Christian brotherhood and perceived that Jesus had duped or conned us into perceiving one another as family. Let me give you another example. In November of 2007, Harry Fujiwara went on his first men's retreat with North Shore Baptist Church. He was an unsaved man, and he went to that retreat, and he was amazed, and he was impressed by the love and the kindness that our men showed to Jerry Renee. Do you remember that, Jerry, that Harry was there? He was unsaved. He was amazed when he saw Roy, the love that we had for Jerry and the love that he had for us. Love toward each other is loud and clear as an evangelistic message to the lost. And so let brotherly love continue. But that's not the point of the passage. Notice also that for this author to command it to be continued is implied that there had to be some sort of a threat or some sort of a danger that love was starting to grow cold in this church. I mean, you wouldn't say let brotherly love continue unless there was some danger that this brotherly love was vanishing or that it was at least dwindling. And so this command implies that perhaps they had been less loving in recent days than they used to be. Maybe because of persecution, maybe because doctrinally they were starting to slip away from Jesus and to lean back toward Judaism, maybe because they, like the rest of us, are selfish sinners, and we always, every day, need to be reminded of 
one another. But for whatever reason, this reminder came probably because the author was sensing that there was starting to be some kind of a lack of love. But whatever the current danger was, these people needed a brief command and notice, I think, it, I think, I think what the verse doesn't say is just as loud as what the verse does say. There is absolutely no explanation in the verse whatsoever as to how they are supposed to love. Our text is four English words. Let brotherly love continue. There are no how-tos. There are no directions. Simply, let brotherly love continue. We know that they already knew how to do this. We know this based upon what we read back in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions. And here's where the love comes in. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you didn't get caught, but your brother got caught. And instead of letting your brother suffer alone, you stepped forward to volunteer to suffer with him. That is practical love. They knew how to love. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. That is brotherly love. These people knew how to love. And likewise, I can say to North Shore Baptist Church that to me, you have demonstrated for the past 30 years that you actually do know how to love one another. I don't think I need to say a lot about how to love. You already know how to do that. You demonstrate that you know how to do that. Anytime that there has ever been a missionary or a visiting pastor in town, and we have called for your participation in a love offering, you have always sent the person away with an embarrassingly generous gift. You have been practically kind to those who come through our doors. Whenever there is a sickness or a birth or a death, the meal ministry is always quick to act and extends abundant kindness to the point where when anything happens in my family, I gain weight. You give too much food for too long. Whenever anybody falls into sin, and we are people who fall into sin, are we not? I mean, how many sinners have we had come in and out of our doors here? My goodness, whenever anybody falls into sin and genuinely repents, and sometimes people have to get up front and publicly repent, in every case, 100% of the time, you are always quick to forgive and quick to restore and quick to forget and to move on. You prayed for William Montgomery that he would get that kidney. He got that kidney. You are a loving church. Every year when the interns come, they don't want to leave. And they all have a universal message when they're leaving, and that is this. You people are family. And when they come into our midst, they see that we love one another interns, visiting pastors, guests who just happen to come through, give a consistent report. Your church is so warm. Your people are so loving. You know how to love. And so again, when I say you, I'm not speaking about all of you, but I am speaking to 
the subset that is loving. I'm not speaking to the disengaged subset, but generally speaking, you are a loving church. On the whole, that is the general sentiment. From my limited perspective, you know how to love. And that is not surprising. The reason it's not surprising is because those of you that are saved, you all have the same heavenly father and you look like your father. 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now concerning brotherly love, concerning Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How does it happen? It happens because the love of God is in our heart and it is a natural overflow. This is not a mechanical thing. You, 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 you don't get instructions here on how to love. It's not paint by numbers. This is love in our hearts from God. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So it's not surprising that you know how to love one another. And whoever loves has been born of God and, and knows God. Now, now, that is not to say that that, that love is always propelled by feelings. Sometimes love is carried out by faith apart from feelings. And when that happens, it doesn't make it insincere. But it is to say that brotherly love at its very essence is generated or springs from the well where God is in our hearts. In other words, when God, who is love, is in our lives, the byproduct or natural outworking has been for the brethren to love one another. And that's why I say I'm not surprised that you, for the most part, are warm, loving people because you know God. So the command is not start loving one another. If that was the command, it would mean that you weren't saved. And the command is not here's how to love one another, but the command is let brotherly love continue. And this command implies... You did it, but you can't stop doing it. And even if you are doing it well right now, and I think he's trying to say, you're not doing it as well now as you used to do it, but even if you are doing it as well now as you used to do it, you must never stop. You never finish loving the brethren. You do not retire from loving the brethren. I think he's saying, if you used to do it better than you do it now, then get back. Get back, Loretta. Get back to where you once belonged. Get back to loving people the way that you are supposed to love people. With that in mind, I have six points of application. Number one, love must be your number one priority in the Christian life. There are other things that are important, but relationally in the Christian life, love has to be your number one priority. Why? 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, if I can prophesy, if I can understand mysteries, if I have mountain-moving faith, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If you don't have love, you don't have anything at all. doesn't matter how well you know your Bible or how much you pray or how much you give to this church or how hard you work here in serving. It is all, listen, a collective zero 
unless you have in your heart brotherly love and you exercise that brotherly love. So make it your number one priority in self-examination and ask the question, do I really love the brethren? If so, what are the evidences for where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What are the evidences that you love the brethren? Answer honestly. And if the answer is, no, I really don't love the brethren, or maybe I love the brethren, or sometimes or occasionally I love the brethren, well, if those are your answers, then your most radical repentance needs to come in the form of love for the brethren. In other words, fix that before you fix anything else, for unless that is fixed, nothing else will work. You know the old joke or skit of the vacuum cleaner salesman who knocks on the door and walks inside and says to the lady of the house, I guarantee you that I can, and he takes a, a, a bowl of dirt and throws it on the floor. He says, I guarantee you that my vacuum cleaner will pick this up, and if it doesn't pick this up, I will eat it with a spoon. And she said, well, let me get you a spoon. And he says, no, ma'am, you don't understand. My vacuum cleaner can pick up anything. She says, let me get you a spoon. She says, you don't understand, ma'am. This is a Hoover. This is the best vacuum cleaner that there is. Why do you think that it won't be able to pick up this dirt? The woman said, because we don't have electricity. (laughs) I give you fresh, new, imaginative... 21st century jokes and you scowl and you groan and I give you something from the 1930s and you roar. I don't love you. (laughs) Unless you have the electricity, it's not going to work. Unless you have love, your devotional life is meaningless. This is your number one priority. And so your sincerest prayer should be, Lord, give me a love for your people and equip and empower me by your spirit to exercise it. Love must be your number one priority. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of these is love. Let brotherly love continue. Number two, and this maybe is the most practical and the one that perhaps will sting the most. Um, This is the one where I run the risk of being misunderstood. This might be the most important or certainly the most practical of the application points. And that is, in order to love the brethren, you must smash and burn the idol of privacy. In order to love the brethren, you have to smash and burn the idol in your heart of privacy. People cannot extend themselves to others because they are enslaved and addicted to self-interest and self-preservation. Think about our society. We go to our jobs, we come home, and we there are sequestered. And if I am to extend myself to get to know you and to serve you and to care for you and to be your friend, that will mean an inconvenience for me. And Americans in this age of Netflix and DoorDash have built castles with wide, deep, dangerous moats around our lives to the point where 
we are crippled and paralyzed from coming out of ourselves. Can you help me with this? No, I'm not going to be able to do that. And the reason why you're not going to be able to do that is because you are chained to your own life, to the idol of your own life. And it's getting worse. It was bad before 2020, but now the privatization of our society is doing more damage than any disease ever could. In order to love the brethren, you have to be with the brethren. And in order to be with the brethren, you have to exit your cocoon. And in order for that to happen, you need to see the idolatry of privatized the privatized world that you live in. And you have to reject it, and you have to renounce it, and you have to hate it, and you have to smash it by grace, and you have to burn it to the glory of God. Because that is the vehicle by which you have stayed chained to your self-interest. The obstacle that keeps you from being free to love the brethren is your own private world. And here's the irony of this. It's that those who love their, watch it, freedom to do whatever they want when they want to do it and cannot be counted on to extend themselves to love and to serve other people, these people are actually the enslaved ones. They tell themselves that they are free, but they are actually addicted and enslaved to their private world. Whereas those whose lives are for the kingdom, those who are active in serving and loving others, they are actually the free ones. And so those of you who sequester yourselves in your own lives, you need to know that you are steeped in idolatry and you need to repent of that idolatry. In the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, repent and smash and burn that idol and free yourself to love. Let brotherly love continue. Application point number three. Meet practical needs. Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Meet urgent or meet practical needs. Now it is good that we say to one another, I love you. I love it when that happens. I think this is something that we should do. We are brothers and sisters, and indeed we do love one another, and we can say to one another that we love one another. But James chapter 2 says that if a brother or a sister is hungry, they don't have anything to wear, and you say to that person, be warm, be filled, what good have you done to that person? If you don't give them the things which are needful for the body, love is often expensive, and it is always practical and active and helpful. So if I sit in my recliner with my remote control, and as my wife passes by me, I say, Anna, Love you, love you, sweetheart, but I do not get up to help her clean the house. She won't believe me. Eric DeJoya needed a liver. Rocky Wolford didn't say, I love you, love you, brother, love you. What he did is he got on an operating table and he donated a chunk of his liver so that Eric could be well. God does not just tell us that he loves us. God meets practical needs. 
James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. A couple of weeks ago, I was contacted by a gentleman in our church who said this, Pastor, do you know of anybody in the church who has a financial need? My wife and I would like to help this person. I know of someone that needs help. I asked them just to give me the money and I would pass it on to that person. You know what that is? That is that's what we call brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. Number four, it's your move. It's your move. The Bible doesn't say, let brotherly love continue once you feel sufficiently loved yourself. Take the initiative, just like God in Christ did with you. Extend yourself, reach out, be proactive and love. The command is not be loved. The command is love. So at church, when you see someone that is standing by themselves, you should be the one to walk up to them and say hello. You should not be waiting for them to walk up to you. You see a visitor, you should be the one that extends yourself. You should not wait for them to approach you. Someone in the church is sitting by themselves. You should be the one to sit down with them. Don't wait. Don't sit back. And again, people will say, well, I come to this church all the time, and quite frankly, I don't feel loved. Well, first of all, I want you to know, I believe you. And and I also want to say, not in a sarcastic way, that is really bad. I, I, I am sincerely sorry. Here's what that means. That means that we have failed to love you as we should and that we are wrong. And in your case, we are an unloving church and we have failed. But that doesn't change the fact that you are commanded not to be loved, but to love, to initiate. It is your move. Let brotherly love continue. Number five, love must be intentional. I spoke earlier about the fact that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them and says, Nobody had to teach you about love because you know God. And, and, and it is true that, that there is a sense in which love will be an overflow of what we are. But yet at the same time, it has to be intentional. Are you loving toward the brethren? Now, again, I ask you to stop, to answer honestly, be very careful with your answer because many will say yes because that is the right answer, and they will say yes simply because they don't hate anyone. Once again, love is not the absence of hate. Many think that they have fulfilled the law of love by virtue of the fact that they don't hate, but that's not love. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. The question is, how would I wish to be treated? Nobody answers that question by saying, just don't hate me. That's all I'm asking. How are things going at North Shore Baptist Church? Great, great. They don't hate me. (laughs) Nobody answers that way. No, no, no. 
I wish to be respected and I wish to be heard and I wish to be helped and I wish to be assisted and encouraged and I wish to be loved. Since that is the way that I wish to be treated, we need to be intentional then in the things that we do for other people. Here is a way, not the only way, but here is a way in which you can be intentional. You cannot love the brethren unless you are with the brethren. You can contact the brethren or, here's an idea, the brethren in the middle of the week come together on Wednesday night, and some of you can't come because you're working then, and some of you can't come because you're putting little tiny babies to bed at that time, but some of you can come, and would you come primarily to worship God and hear the word of God? Yes, that is primarily why you should come, but there's another reason why you should join us on Wednesday nights, because the mathematical probability of seeing other human beings whom you could love is greater when you come together with those human beings. Like you're going to stand a better chance of loving someone today in 12 minutes by going downstairs and having a bagel and talking to someone than you will if you go off into your sequestered world. I'm going to be standing out there shaking hands. If you walk by me... I'm going to give you the eye, all right? Be intentional. James says, you do to others what you would have them do to you. Are you intentionally loving in this church? Can you cite within your own mind your most recent example of intentional love? Let brotherly love continue. And finally, Number six, look to Jesus as the example of perfect love. John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And four verses later, Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. The gospel is of first importance. That is what propels our love we are not going to be able to love to the extent to which Christ loved, but we should strive and try and strain and seek and aspire to do that. You see, life is filled with decisions and choices, and every one of those choices is preceded with an internal conversation. Here's the conversation. Okay, Eddie boy, what are we going to do today? All right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to serve yourself. You're going to forget about the brethren. You're going to forget about that need, and you're going to forget about extending yourself. Now, I hear that guy talking to me all the time, and I know him. I know him very well. His name is Edwin Mark Moore. That is how I talk to me. That is the way that I think. I am a sinner. And I need to be forgiven for my lack of love, even if it doesn't work itself out in life that way. I need to be forgiven that my wicked heart even thinks that way. Where does that forgiveness come from? That forgiveness comes from Jesus Christ who died for selfish sinners like me. And you know what else I need? I need strength to actually stop listening to me and to start loving. And where does that strength come from? That comes from Jesus Christ. There's another voice that's talking to me, and that voice says, Ed, 
I laid down my life for you. Will you now love the brethren? And when I consider his love for sinners and more intensely his love for me, because I know my sin better than I know anybody's sin, and yet he loves me, and he feeds me, and he takes care of me, and he's forgiven me, and he keeps forgiving me every time I mess up and sin, and he keeps loving me and loving me and loving me, and he says, Ed, look at the way that I have loved you. Will you now love the brethren? That is the only place where I find strength to silence the voice of Ed Moore and actually love. We are all imperfect with respect to love. But if we are Christians, we need to live like Christians, which means to live like Christ. So we need Jesus. Let brotherly love continue. Oh, Father in heaven, we just keep falling short. Lord, we need your son to forgive us. Lord, we need your spirit to strengthen us. Oh, Lord, we need Jesus Christ to talk to us, to remind us of his gospel. Lord, we need help. Left to ourselves, Lord, we will not love well and we will not love long. But Lord, because you are our father, Lord, because you will not give up on us and because you hear our prayers, I would ask you to help us to let brotherly love continue. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.